this is your first time here, I want to personally welcome you. And my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. I usually do a book of the preaching. And this morning we're going to be teaching out of the book of Titus. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Keep it raised really high. One of the ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have one. And if you don't own one, go ahead and keep the one that we have. It is our gift to you. Update. So we have been on this three-year process of raising a million dollars for our obligation in terms of the loans and stuff that we had uh, for this building campaign in which we are um, currently worshiping in. The goal was to complete it by the end of May. And so the update is we completed it. We're done. And so, yeah, that's a good deal. I'm glad you guys are excited about that because I am too. And as promised, uh, there will be bread and wine for everyone who believes in Jesus after the sermon. Um, it is the best box wine from Costco, and so um, enjoy in moderation. So let's, uh, let's make sure we do that. Um, so, so here's where we've been in Titus. We've, we, we said first we started this letter. We're going to be in it for seven weeks. It's the fourth week. Um, the letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who himself was a missionary. He'd go to several cities, and he would share the gospel to people. They believe in Christ Jesus, and then he would start churches throughout that city, so multiple churches in a city. And in that process, he would leave people there to oversee those churches. One of the people that he left in a city called Crete was Titus. So he writes back to Titus, who is leading ultimate other leaders within this church, and he writes this letter to teach or inform, to instruct, to motivate Christians who are in this city who don't know what it looks like to live for Jesus. And so the first week we talked about him being able to have qualifications for leaders that are in the church. And then then we looked at false leadership. And then last week we looked at the roles of um, men and women and younger men and younger women and employees and so forth and how they begin to reflect what it looks like to be men and women who love and follow Jesus Christ. Now today we're going to be able to look at the basis for it, the why. What is the motivation? How how do we and why do we continue to live lives that that were godly? For those of us in this room as Christians, what does it look like for us to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And so that's what we're we're looking at today is the why, looking at grace, this, this beautiful concept of Christianity. And so before we do that, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful, Lord, to teach this text I'm thankful, Lord, we get to talk about the gospel. We get to believe upon Jesus. And those in this room who do not know you get to hear about your son and how you loved us so much that you gave him and that we all can have access to you through the work of Jesus. Lord, that is ultimately what it's about. God, help us to desire godliness. Help us to desire holiness. Lord, help us to repent of our ways, to return to you, to know your favor and what you give us through your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd remove me, that we may see Jesus and him only that we may be filled with your spirit and know the love of you as our Father. In Christ's name, amen. So you guys probably heard that there is going to be a new face on the $20 bill. And so this is the face that we're going to have here. That's Harriet Tubman. Um, Oh, that's right. I knew you guys were going to clap. That's right. You guys just took seven seconds away from my clock here. Um, so, So first of all, that's the $20 bill. And I'm glad. Look at, look at, that's a bad woman right there. Look at that. Look at that. When you are purchasing something you should not be purchasing, you see that, you're like, no, I probably shouldn't get that, right? That is that look like, boy, you better not, right? In fact, the way she probably said is, boy, you bed not. And for those of you guys who know Ebonics, bed not is more serious in the Greek than better not, all right? So, so <laughs> I'm serious. Now, look at that face. So Harriet Tubman, if, if you don't know who she is, one, 
slap yourself. Um, Harriet Tubman lived in our country, was a slave, um, was able to get freedom. And in getting freedom, she was a free woman, but not just a free woman in her circumstances, but she also knew God and she was free from the penalty of her sins. And she took that framework and, and her, her position and whatever privilege that she had experienced to now go back and try to free other slaves. And she's got this famous quote where she says, I freed thousands of slaves. I freed thousands of slaves. And she says, I would have freed more if only they knew they were slaves. Like, if they just realized what the situation that they were in, and, and they knew that they were slaves, but she's saying if they just knew that there's a, such a thing called freedom, that there's a way that they can live free, if they just knew that, then they would live free. And I think this is pertinent for what we're talking about today, because there's at least two types of people here that we're going to address. And that is, those are those of us who have never experienced the freedom that's in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that every single man and woman, we are born in this world in sin, and we are, we are enslaved to the power or the reign of sin, and there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of it. So what happens, we develop particular worldviews and ideologies, etc., and how we live in this. And Jesus has come now to free us. And there's many of us who've never experienced the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. And then... There's those of us who do trust in Jesus and believe that he's died for the penalty of our sin and that there is freedom in Christ Jesus. However, the freedom that we think about is not the freedom that the gospel really implies. That, that it would be like this. Many of the slaves that were freed by Harriet Tubman and many of men and women like her, it's like them now leaving from the south and heading to the north and finding themselves in Manhattan, New York, and, and trying to figure out what, is it, what does it mean now to be free? My assumption is, at least at first, there were probably people who, who resembled their slave owners who would say, hey, can you do that for me? And they would do it right away because they were so used to being slaves. That they didn't know what it was like to be free. They didn't know what it was like to live in freeness that, that now that they had, the privilege of now that they were able to experience. And I think there are many Christians, though they know Jesus, that are not living into the freedom in which gospel, the gospel implies and what God provides. Uh, the freedom is not a license to do whatever you want as if there was no such thing as you being freed. It's a freedom to actually live godly and upright lives. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And I'm so excited to teach this particular text because it is absolutely saturated with the good news of Jesus. Look, looking at what God has done for us, the freedom in which we have in Christ Jesus. And so here's, well, let's start first in verse 11. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We just start us off with just a beautiful promise. Um, the, first, the first word there, for, it's a connecting word, like because. And he's saying, here's why you do what he just talked about last week. We talked about older women and older, older men and younger men and women and employees and so forth. He goes, these were things we called you to do, but here's why. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And let's deal with the all people first because you could look at that and go, is he talking about universalism, that everybody will be saved by God? No, no, um, everybody who wants to be saved by God will. Um, when he says all people and connected to just before, he goes, that means women and men, slave and free, all kinds of people get in on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when it comes about transformation or change, I think sometimes we swing the pendulum of two errors. And I want to deal with that first. When it comes about change or growing as a Christian, 
um, or becoming more like Jesus or sanctification, whatever phrase or terminology that you're comfortable with, um, there's two eras. The first one is legalism. And the second one is antinomianism. And I'm going to explain what these two things are. Legalism um, has everything to do with the law. And so it's taking all the law of God or the commandments, what the imperatives of Scripture, and it's having a list of these things and saying, this is what it means ultimately. If you can live up to these things, then you'll know God loves you and he accepts you. If you can love your neighbor and you don't kill anybody and you don't do this and you do that, if you can live up to these things, then you'll know God accepts you and he loves you. And then some people go, well, it can't just be about morality. And so the pendulum swings all the way to the other side of antinomianism. And nomianism is just another word for law. And anti means against law. And so this side says, no, 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 no. It's all about relationship. As long as you have relationship with Jesus, morality doesn't even matter. You don't have to obey God's commands. You don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to do spiritual disciplines. You don't, want to, you don't have to go to church if you want to. Sure, none of those things are necessity. I mean, just, just have relationship with God. And that's it. And so on one hand, it stresses morality without relationship. And the other hand, it stresses relationship without any kind of morality. And neither one of those are biblical, by the way. The gospel, on the other hand, what the gospel of grace says to, to legalism, it says, first and foremost, you don't need to do anything to make yourself acceptable before God. He has already done that on your behalf in Christ Jesus. That, that there, there's, there's no set of morals that you can keep up to and God's going to look at you and say, now I know. Now I want you because of the potential you have in God's kingdom. No, no, because I love you because I love you and I accept you on the basis of Jesus. So all you need to do to be right with the Lord is accept his acceptance of you in Christ Jesus. But on the other side, what the gospel says to antinomianism, that there's no way that you could be in right relationship with God and not obey him. There's no way that you could be in a loving relationship with God and not obey him. It's the man who looks at his wife and says, I love you. But yet he steps out in the marriage again and again and again and again. Sorry, bro, you don't love her. Right? Jesus says it this way, if you love me, meaning the way that we love him is because he first loves us. And it's in seeing his love for us that motivates our obedience for him. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So first and foremost, the gospel is good news of what God has done for us. And our response to the gospel is receiving and believing the grace that he gives us and living in a new relationship for, with, with God. That it brings about this sort of change. And what Paul is saying is, for this kind of grace, it has appeared. And it appeared, that language there is appeared in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So the grace of God is found in Jesus. New life is found in Jesus. The way you grow is in Jesus. The good news is in Jesus. Guys, everything is in who? Okay, close your Bibles. We're going to pray. No, I'm joking. <laughs> you got it. You got it, right? And so it's, it's in Jesus Christ. It's, been, it's appeared, bringing salvation for all people to ultimately know who this Jesus is. Now, we talk about grace but I want to give you an acronym, an acronym that I heard a long time ago of what grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. I don't know where I got this acronym from. I guarantee you someone thought of it in the 90s when Christians were making everything was an acronym. Like everything. You couldn't do anything without an acronym, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. That means God himself freely writing the check for everything you need to be with him everything you need for godliness, everything your marriage needs, everything your singleness needs, everything you need in your life, God says, I write the check for it, and it's at Christ's expense. 
that he does it all. That, that is his grace. It is unmerited favor that you have from God. And unmerited just means you did nothing for it. He did it ultimately out of the goodness of who he is because he's a good, loving, gracious father who loves us and said, here's my son, join in with him, and you are freely accepted. He says this grace has appeared for everybody to be able to get in on. Now, if you're, if you're, if you're like me, um, when I first became, or before I was even a Christian, the, the thought of becoming a Christian to me not bothered me, but Christianity seemed mundane, boring, drab, right? Something I didn't want to do. Because I didn't know any fun Christians. And, and not that you have to be fun to be a Christian, but for me, my personality, the way I was, I wanted to have fun. Like, I, I was, I, before I even knew what, uh, what's the fear of missing? FOMO, right? I wanted to say it right because you could say something that's wildly inappropriate if I said it the wrong way. So there, there, I, I always just wanted to be out. And I didn't know very many Christians that looked like they were having fun, right? And, and I, I wanted to have fun. And so it, you, could, you can think about Christianity sometimes as going, oh, if I walk into God's grace, it's going to be boring. And I'm, I'm not going to know anybody. I'm going to lose all my friends. i got to get rid of all my music. And like whatever, whatever the thing you may, you, you may think it is. But that's, that's actually not what he's talking about here. When Paul says that this grace is is coming. There's, there's a new goodness. There's a new life. There's a, there's a new life that he has that's actually better than the life that you had before. But it's hard for us to see that. And the, re- the way we're going to see it, ultimately, and the way people are going to see it, is not through just them reading their Bibles, but you actually, as people, being the very Bibles that they may not have yet, that they may not know yet. And he says, if you've experienced this grace, something's supposed to happen. Here's what he says that's supposed to happen if you experience this grace. Verse 12. It says, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When it comes to grace, it is hard for us to understand it. It's hard for us to understand it because there's nothing like it in the whole world. Even if you look at most religions, most religions is essentially, if I obey, then I know God will accept me. When we begin to understand the gospel, the good news of God's grace is I'm already loved and accepted, and therefore I obey. And so it's really hard for us to get it. I mean, you think about it this way. It doesn't work like that in sports. It doesn't work like that in, in, your, in the, your places of vocation. Can you imagine God op- or your, your employer operating on the basis of grace? Hey, I know you can't type. I need to hire someone that can type, and I know you can't, but I'm going to show you grace. So I'm going to hire you anyway. I know you can't do the job. I'm going to pay you a lot of money. In fact, never even show up. I don't care. It's just grace, right? Hey. <laughs> It would never work. That's not happening anywhere, right? Or the, the way it happens usually in sports. And so I, I grew up playing a lot of sports. And in high school, I played basketball. And I was a um, very uh, out-of-control basketball player. Um, and I would always turn the ball over. And a turnover is when you give the ball to the other team, which is apparently not a good idea in basketball, right? So, so and every time I would do a turnover, I'd probably do three or four in a row, which is really bad. And then my coach, I'd look over on the sideline, my coach, right? Because you're looking at the coach and say, what, is he going to take me out? Right? You look at him with that look, like, are we good? Are we still good? I know I just, I know, are we still good? We're good, right? <laughs> we good, right? And so, same thing with even your employment. You make a mistake, and, the, and another, sta- another mistake, another mistake, another mistake, and you look at your employer, and you're like, are we still good? Because you know, at any moment, it's, it is based off performance. That he could just say, no, we're not good, you're done. You're, you're done, right? And I think, sadly, sometimes when we think about God, we, we think God's looking at us the same way. That especially if we find ourselves repeating any particular sins, that we, we, we've tried to repent in it, and it comes back up again, 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 and it keeps coming back, you're like, dang, I've been doing this for a while. It comes back up again. That at one moment, you, you start to look at God, and are we, are we still good? And 
what grace communicates is God said, we're always going to be good. I, I never accepted you because of what you did. I'm never going to reject you because of something you did. You didn't do anything to earn this. You're not going to do anything to lose this. It's completely by his favor and his love. So hear me clearly. God accepts you, and he accepts people as you are. There's no cleaning up and then coming to God. God accepts you as you are, right? People say, say it this way. God accepts you as you are. However, he never leaves you as you are. There is such a thing called biblical change, such a thing called growth, such a thing as the Bible talks about as sanctification, which is a big word of a, pr- a process that happens when you become to look more and more like the Savior in whom you claim as your Lord. Uh, for some of us, it happens quicker than others, but it does not happen overnight. Like, like, so think about this, this, this culture that, we're, that Paul's writing to in Crete. Crete was known as a culture of uh, promiscuity, heavy drinking. In fact, there was this phrase that went around that we talked about that it was like Cretan culture is like they're known for being liars, gluttons, and lazy beasts. Like that was a sign, welcome to Crete. What happens in Crete stays in Crete, right? And so they, 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 that was their culture, which honestly is not that much different than our culture. Like I would say, oh, yeah, that's like a college campus culture. Like that's America, right? Do what you want to do, look after number one. Well, what was happening is this good news of the gospel of grace was landing in people's hearts. And when you begin to experience grace, it begins to shatter your life. But that doesn't mean you change right away. So many of these men and women were coming to the, to, to the church. They were hearing the gospel. But you can only imagine what their lives were looking like. And that's why Paul had to write this letter. Hey, tell the older men not to be drunk. Because what do you think? Older men would probably have a little something, a little flask. The bad boy preached long, right? And so they said, don't drink too much, right? The older women were also drinking. The younger men were out of control. They were drinking that purple drink. It was a lot of people doing things that did not look like God. It didn't mean that they were not Christian. They had not experienced grace. And so Paul is saying there is um, a part of God's grace that grows you as well. And so, so I remember when I first became a Christian. When, when I first became a Christian, I was probably 22 years old, and I was not, I didn't know what to do, what not to do. In fact, it had been a week or two that I, I really had experienced what I would say now was the grace of God. And I remember taking my boy out and saying, I'm celebrating that I'm a new man. And we went out and took a bunch of shots and got faded, right? Now, I don't think God was like, oh, okay. Right? No, no, no. Not at all. Right? Not at all. Not at all. But if you remain in Christ... And you remain connected to Jesus, and he gives you new desires and affections that the things of your old life, ultimately, you begin to say no to. And you begin to say more of the things of your new life to say, yeah, God, I want that. And even though this old you is still trying to pull you over here, the grace of God is training you in such a way, no, 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 Lord, I, I want this and I want you. It's why we sing songs like, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. There's not a moment or a time in this life as you walk with Jesus that you will be sinless. That will not happen this side of heaven. God says, I will give you something, ultimately someone, to walk alongside with you. And so when Paul communicates to Timothy here in verse 12, he says, here's what this grace does. It doesn't just welcome you into the kingdom of God, but it says it is training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, meaning this grace is training. That is present tense, meaning it is happening now. 
That it's not just God's grace that forgives us our sin and welcomes us into the kingdom, but it's also God's grace in Jesus that is allowing us, that is freeing us, God's riches at Christ's expense, his work in our life that is growing us to become more and more like Jesus. And, and, and if you think of that word training, it's where we get the word pedagogy from. When you think about anyone who's a teacher here and who instructs, anyone who's a parent here who instructs. And if you're a teacher or a parent, you know you got to tell your kids or your students the same things over and over and over again. If you're married, you got to tell your spouse the same thing over and over again. If you're a pastor, you got to tell your people the same things over and over again. And you need people to tell you the same thing. It's this training, ongoing training. And here's what it's doing. In short, when it says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, it's saying say no to it. And the reason why you have to say no to it is because everything in your culture and everything in the worldviews around you and everything, sometimes even in your own intuitions and even your temptation says, I want to say yes. Like, I want to say yes. This is what I actually want to do. And if you continue to give yourself to that thing, you'll want to do it more and more and more and more. If you practice the habits of giving yourself to the things that show ungodliness and worldly passions, it would be a lot easier for you to continue to do it again and again and again. You will have physical and mental, spiritual cravings for the things that are not of God. And your affections for God will continue to deaden and deaden and deaden. So Paul says, here's what grace does when you begin to look supremely in the work of Christ Jesus. When you begin to meditate on what it is that God has done on your behalf in Christ Jesus, it trains you to say, nah, no to this. No to this even though the currents of culture will naturally pull you this way. Hear me, guys. We don't drift towards grace. you got to fight for it. We don't naturally drift towards the things of God. We naturally drift toward the things that are apart from God. And ungodliness is anything that's not centered in the work of Christ. It could actually look good on the surface. It is ultimately saying, some of us, I believe in God, but he's on the periphery instead of saying God is at the center. And I've said this before, God shouldn't be on your list. And I know some youth pastor or somebody, maybe one of the other pastors said this too, and we'll correct it later, that it's on a, on a list, right? Put God first, this second, this, just, no, no, put him at the center. And everything else you do, you, you flow out of understanding who God is. And so this grace that God gives us says we say no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions. Now, worldly passions is the word lust, um, which is not a bad word. It's, it's neutral. It depends on what you do with those lusts. It just means to have a strong desire. If you're a man and you love your wife and you have a strong desire for your wife, don't put that away. Uh Uh-uh, right? That's a strong desire. It's just saying a worldly desire, though, is when it's being shaped and it's being bent by the things around you. Let me just tell you, you don't have to try to be shaped by this world. You just have to live in it. The illustration I give all the time is swimming in the ocean. When you swim in the ocean... You put your stuff down, you go out there, you swim for a bit. Before you know it, you are way over here and your stuff is over here. And it's not like you intentionally tried to swim this way. It's just the currents of the ocean took you that way. If you are not intentionally seeking the things of God, the cur- I don't care if you are a Christian, the currents of culture will take you that way. There's something that you are doing right now and you know it that a few years ago you would have said, I will never do this. And somehow you become numb to those things because you're not experiencing and allowing the grace of God to flood your heart by the Spirit of God by the scripture of God, by the people of God. And so when you are, you begin to say no to this and no to these worldly passions. It's not the desires that are the issues. Desire is a good thing. They're God-given. Passions are a good thing. They're God-given. No man or woman of God, child of God, should ever give up their passions or their desires. I mean, it, it, it's not that we think that God's, God's are, God thinks our desires are too big. He actually thinks they're too small. In fact, there's a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis 
who I know you guys probably have never heard of because I never quote him, but he has this quote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He goes, it ain't our desires. God's saying your desires are too small. You're like a child who'd rather play in the mud. When God's going, no, here's what grace is offering you. Not the mundane, drab life, but the good life of ultimately a holiday at the sea. Now, lest you think that when I say the good life, it means nothing bad happens, not at all. You and your non-Christian neighbor will have the same issues. You will have the same struggles in marriage. You have the same struggles in your singleness. The same struggles in getting a job or keeping a job. You will have the same circumstances around you. The difference is the grace of God in your life to be able to navigate those circumstances and understanding a hope that comes from Jesus Christ. So he says it tells us to say no to ungodliness. And we say no to worldly passions. But then the things we say yes to, he says here, there's, there's the negative side, but here's the positive side. The things we say yes to is that we are self-controlled, upright, and have godly lives. And so self-control, meaning that you are controlling yourself, this is like the third or fourth time that Paul has spoken of this. That, that there is a godly restraint to, to say no to the things of your flesh and say yes to the things of the Spirit of God, and that you're upright. That means you carry yourself with sober-mindedness, very sober-mindedness. What is it that God has for me? And then it says godly lives, and I'm glad it says godly lives. Here's why. Some of us might think somehow that what Paul is saying is be a nice Christian, be a kind Christian, be a good person. Listen, you could be kind, and you could be nice, and you could be polite, and you don't need the Holy Spirit in you. We know plenty of people who are very good, nice people that you love to have your neighbors and as friends and so forth. That doesn't mean they know and love Jesus, right? Some of you guys, you're just natural sweethearts. Like, even if you weren't Christian, you would just be nice people. I tell my wife that all the time. Like, you were just born better than me, right? <laughs> like, she doesn't even have, like, the, like, inclinations. that She has her own problems for sure. But, like, I got problems that I don't think she has. And I'm like, I was, to me, I'm more likely to do some stuff I shouldn't do. And I watch it in our kids. One of our kids wants to do the right thing all the time. He's not perfect, but dang it, he will try to be. The other kid is like, what'd you say not to do? That's what I'm doing. <laughs> right? And it's like, what are you doing? Right? What are you doing? I just told you not to do that. I'm standing right here. You're not even going to wait till I leave? Not that I'm teaching you to wait till I leave to do that, Right? He says godly lives. When he says godly lives, that means a life that is centered on God. That God actually is Lord of your life. He's not just someone who gets you out of hell. He's not just someone who just forgives your sin. He's Lord over your life. He is good. And he says when we have grace that is training us, this ongoing grace, we say no to the things that deaden our affections for the Lord, and we say yes to the things that raise our affections for who Christ is. And so what Paul has done so far is having us look back to the appearing of God's grace in Christ Jesus, what God has already accomplished, and ultimately talking about the present tense training of this grace that's in our life now for this present moment. And now he shifts to focus on what is to come, the appearing of the glory of God. Read with me here in verse 13. It says that we are waiting for the, the blessed hope, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says this is blessed hope that we have, that we're looking forward to. Now, hope biblically, is not the way we talk about hope in our common vernacular. Because when we use the word hope, we are basically saying wistful thinking. Like, I kind of hope it doesn't rain. I kind of hope this happens. I kind of hope this. Wishful thinking. Hope, biblically, is a divine belief. 
that you believe and have the assurance of something God has promised. Since Jesus lived, since he died and was raised from the dead, that we believe all the things that the Bible teaches about who Christ is and what he's going to do. So there's something about looking to the future that dictates what we do right now. Hear me on this. There's something about what we look and hope for in the future that dictates the way we live now. And that's just not you individually and managing your sin or something like that. That is how you live out in such a way that the people around us begin to know about this God. Paul is not just writing to Titus so that they can have good Christians. He's writing to Titus because he knows when the gospel take, takes hold of someone's life, it takes hold of a community and the people around them, that transformation happens. And the way that it happens is by people looking at us and how we live, how we do music, how we do family, how we do relationships, how we do dating, politics, art, etc., justice. These things matter as we look to the grace that has come and that is training us, also to the glory that's going to be revealed when we see Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. When's the last time we actually meditated on seeing Jesus? Like, when's the last time we thought, man, I can't wait till heaven is here and, touch, and touches and redeems this world and I will see Jesus face to face? At best, we're like, I hope he comes so I, I don't have to put up with whatever it is I'm going through right now. And even then, it's individual. We're not, we, we don't have good imaginations about what the future will be like and we can act it out now. What our neighborhoods would look like, what our places of work would look like, what our relationships and our family would look like, what, what certain communities would look like. We don't think about that. And here's who we can learn from. Children, right? Children have an idea of the future that they will act out right now, right? If you don't, if you don't have kids, you're not around kids, kids know what they want to be like and then they start practicing it right now. If a kid wants to be a fireman, he will be a fireman. If he doesn't have a fireman hat, he will find something that in his mind resembles a fireman hat. If a girl wants to be a prin- if a girl wants to be a princess, you best believe she's a princess right now, right? And, and if you don't have a princess dress for her, she will find it, she will make it, don't need it, I got it, I'm good, right? And, and, and they, they will work like that. My, if, if, if the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers came to my sons right now and said, we have a place in the lineup for you, I promise you they would say, all right, let's go, I'm ready, right? Because they think they play for them already anyway. They're, hey, can YouTube this player, YouTube this player. And they just want to practice swings. All they do is all, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, oh man, the green, the green monster at the Boston. I'm going to play at the Boston Red Sox. All right, Eli, we're at the Boston Red Sox Stadium, and you're pitching to me. Oh, home run. It's like they're acting it out. I'm just sitting there going, wow, what did mom give you guys, right? <laughs> the kids, kids will think about the future, and they will act it out. I wonder if it could be that the reason why we don't live our faith out loud and our friends who don't know and trust Jesus don't know what it's like or we can even picture what it would be like for them to be Christians because they really haven't seen it in us. We're too busy just trying to manage our own sin and make sure we're right instead of living out this gospel in a way that others begin to say, I want in on that. And bringing about in the name of Jesus in response to the grace that we have and looking forward to the glory that is being revealed that we live out in such a way because we have nothing to lose We've gained it all in Christ Jesus. Now, there's this guy named C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him, but he has this quote about this. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things of Christian, a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read the history 
you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who, taught the mo- who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. He's saying if you are not one saturated in remembering and resting in the grace that has appeared through Christ Jesus and realizing that Jesus is constantly, through his grace, training us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness and then ultimately looking for the glory that is to come, then we might not actually be doing exactly what God wants us to do in this present world. That many of us are looking to satisfy our own temporary appetites instead of understanding that the eternal appetite is satisfied in Jesus. And when we are in him, now we're living what it means to be men and women and children of God. Amen? And the the whole basis of this is the most beautiful thing that anybody could ever hear uh, of the why. Paul continues here in verse 14. He says, you do this for Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Meaning meaning he says, this is what God did. God ultimately came in. He saved us. He redeemed us. We were a part of slavery, a whole reign of sin and death and decay. And Jesus comes in and says, I'll write that check. God's riches at Christ's expense. He redeems us from all lawlessness. And he says this, to take a people for himself for his own possession, meaning we belong to him. He is our Lord, and it's good. And whatever he says is good. And when we can't even fathom in our own head, we take him at his word, and we still walk in faith, trusting in who he is and what he's done. He has redeemed us, and he has a possession of people who are what? Who just sit and wait for him to come back? No. Who were zealous for good work. He says zealous, like, I mean, you go crazy, go, what good can I do today? Like when you wake up and you're looking at your friends, you go, what good can I do with, my, with and for my friends today, with and for my community today, with and for my place of employment today, with and for my city today? What good can I do? Because everything that I need, I have already have in Christ Jesus, and it ain't going nowhere. Like that's, that, that's what he's saying. If, if we had an imagination of the future, trusting in what God has brought in our life, we might be able to collectively live out our lives in such a way that people would say, yeah, I want that. I want that. And it's all done in the fact that Christ gave himself to redeem us, right? He, he's our Lord and he's our Savior. That's the gospel. And this gospel of Jesus Christ, we can never get old of. I know we, we talk about it all the time. We can never get sick of it. We, it's what we have. It's the only thing we have is the gospel. We can never get tired of it. Uh, I, I'm going to leave you with this last quote. Who's at, not by C.S. Lewis. G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. Perhaps, perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. 
It may be that he has the eternal appetite of empathy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Now, when we begin to realize there's a beautiful uh, truth of the monotony of the gospel, that the grace of God has appeared, that Christmas is something that lasts every single day, and that ultimately this, this glory of God is going to be revealed, and it's, all of, it's God the Father giving his grace through his Son, and God the Father showing his glory through the Son, and is changing and welcoming and accepting and forgiving sinners like us that we may live into this life, a new life under the lordship of Christ. That when we begin to do this collectively in fear and praise of the grace in which we have in Christ Jesus, just maybe the people around us, our friends and our neighbors who don't follow Jesus, will look at the way that we serve the poor. We'll look at the way that we do relationships and singleness and friendship. We'll look at the way that we handle suffering and, and trials. And they may watch us live our faith out loud. And just maybe they may say, do it again. Do it again. And maybe they would see what their lives would look like if they too would experience the grace that God offers. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you because you were very, very good to us. And you've shown us favor. God, you've shown us favor, Lord, that we do not deserve. We, you've, written, you've written a check, Lord, that we never could have written. God, and you've paid it in full. And we are free. And not free to do what we want, but, Lord, free to have our desires to do exactly what you want us to do. Free that when our desires are going wayward and away from you, God, that we have the power of the Spirit in us by your grace to say no to the ungodly things that pop in our minds, that are shaped by our culture, that we've given our eyes over to. And, Lord, frankly, we've given our hearts over to, that we've given our relationships over to, our sexuality over to, our money over to, our desires, everything, Lord, that we can repent and receive the kindness and mercy that is given to us that leads us to true repentance. God, help us to have our lives be formed and fashioned after the work of Christ, not just individually, but as a community. God, that we would humble ourselves before you and be broken and contrite in front of your word. God, help us to live our faith out loud in humility, trusting and depending upon your spirit and grace. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.